إن هذا القرآن يهدي للتي هي أقوم ويبشر المؤمنين ويبشر المؤمنين الذين يعملون الصالحات أن لهم أجرا كبيرا بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا ايها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحده وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والأرحام إن الله كان عليكم رقيبا وآتوا اليتامى أموالهم ولا تتبدلوا الخبيث بالطيب ولا تأكلوا أموالهم إلى أموالكم إنه كان حوبا كبيرا وإن خفتم ألا تقسطوا في اليتامى فانكحوا ما طاب لكم من النساء مثنى وثلاث ورباع فإن خفتم ألا تعدلوا فواحدة أو ما ملكت أيمانكم ذلك أدنى ألا تعولوا وآتوا النساء صدقاتهن نحلة فإن طبن لكم عن شيء منه نفسا فكلوه هنيئا مريئا ولا تؤتوا السفهاء أموالكم التي جعل الله لكم قياما وارزقوهم فيها واكسوهم وقولوا لهم قولا معروفا وابتلوا اليتامى حتى إذا بلغوا النكاح فإن آنستم منهم رشدا فادفعوا إليهم أموالهم ولا تأكلوها إسرافا وبدارا أن يكبروا ومن كان غنيا فليستعفف ومن كان فقيرا فليأكل بالمعروف فإذا دفعتم إليهم أموالهم فأشهدوا عليهم وكفى بالله حسيبا للرجال نصيب مما ترك الوالدان والأقربون وللنساء نصيب مما 
مما ترك الوالدان والأقربون مما قل منه أو كثر نصيبا مفروضا وإذا حضر القسمة أولو القربى واليتامى والمساكين فارزقوهم منه وقولوا لهم قولا معروفا وليخشى الذين لو تركوا من خلفهم ذرية ضعافا خافوا عليهم فليتقوا الله وليقولوا قولا سديدا إن الذين يأكلون أموال اليتامى ظلما إنما يأكلون في بطونهم نارا وسيصلون سعيرا يوصيكم الله في أولادكم للذكر مثل حظ الأنثيين فإن كن نساء فوق اثنتين فلهن ثلثا ما ترك وإن كانت واحدة فلها النصف ولأبويه لكل واحد منهما السدس مما ترك إن كان له ولد فإن لم يكن له ولد وورثه أبواه فلأمه الثلث فإن كان له إخوة فلأمه السدس من بعد وصية يوصي بها أودين آباؤكم وأبناؤكم لا تدرون أيهم أقرب لكم نفعا فريضة من الله إن الله كان عليما حكيما السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته All praise is due to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who knows what the hearts conceal and what the tongues will not reveal. The one to whom all shall appeal and in front of whom the believers kneel. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send his salat and his salam upon the one who was sent as rahmatan lil alameen. The one whom even his opponents used to call as-sadiq and al-ameen. The one who will be our intercessor, yawm al-deen. Alhamdulillah, today we're going to start Surah An-Nisa and we're going to be summarizing the main essential themes of Surah An-Nisa. And before I begin, just a quick reminder, I've been giving, I've been getting quite a lot of feedback. Alhamdulillah, much of it has been highly positive. I appreciate all of your du'as. Some people seem a little bit concerned or they're wondering like, what is, why aren't we going over the entire Surah? And why aren't we summarizing the entire Surah? And to respond to this, we cannot possibly summarize line by line the entire surah. Uh, surah An-Nisa, uh, it is uh, over 20 pages 
and it is impossible in 40-45 minutes to go over line by line, paragraph by paragraph. If we were to do that, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing, doing one thirtieth of the Quran or around a thirtieth every single day. So what I've decided to do, and this is a different methodology, and you know there's no right and wrong here. Everybody will have a different uh, methodology in how we summarize. What I've decided to do is that I imagine my audience, uh, it just I imagine, inshallah, all of you are very uh, knowledgeable wanting to read the Quran, but I imagine somebody's never read the Quran. And I imagine somebody's asked me, what is the takeaway of Surah An-Nisa? And my job is to explain to them, summarize for a Western English-speaking audience, what are the main essential characteristics? What do I want them to know about this Surah? Now, obviously, I have to be selective. I can't possibly do the entire Surah. And therefore, I do ask Allah's forgiveness and then your apologies. I do understand that some people might not appreciate this style. All I can say is um, everybody has a certain methodology. And what I've decided to do is to summarize in this manner. And the way that I do that is that I'm going to talk a little bit about the entire surah. And then I'll go over some themes, some major issues, and I'll quote the, re the references and the verses, and then move on to another issue, quote the references and verses. I will highlight specifically very important verses. And obviously when I do that, I don't mean that the other verses are not important. I simply mean these verses might be uh, just highlighting them, just showcasing them. And of course, the goal, I hope, inshallah, every one of you reads the entire surah, multiple translations, multiple tafsirs. In case somebody's not able to do that, I hope that inshallah, what you are hearing is better than nothing. So once again, uh, your indulgences, my apologies, I ask Allah's forgiveness. I'm trying my best, but it's really not possible to do justice to the original. Whatever I'm able to do, I'm, able, uh, I'm trying to do that. And I ask Allah for tawfiq and for his forgiveness. So with that uh, introduction again and caveat, Surah An-Nisa. Surah An-Nisa is a mid to late Madani Surah. So as of yet, we've done all Madani Surahs in terms of the larger ones. Uh, Baqarah, Al-Imran, Nisa, they're all Madani Surahs. And Surah An-Nisa was revealed after, maybe a year or two after Surah Al-Imran. And so there are some references to um, Uhud and whatnot, but the major theme of Surah An-Nisa is very different. Now the theme has shifted to the family and the immediate family and the extended family. And by extended family, I don't mean distant cousins, that's in the immediate family. By extended family, I mean society at large. Surah An-Nisa, and of course Nisa means the chapter of women. And this call the chapter of women because there are so many laws and so many rules about the family and about inheritance and about the laws of domestic affairs. And so it is called Surah An-Nisa and the entire Surah is about society, broader and domestic. And the main theme of this entire Surah is to strengthen those bonds and those ties, both within the family and then in broader society. And to talk about the potential threats that might happen from within and from within out and therefore to make sure that the, the bonds of the ummah and especially the bonds of the family are extremely strong. And the first ayah, it sets the tone for the entire surah that, O mankind, fear your Lord, have taqwa of your Lord, who created you from a single soul, and from that soul created its mate, Adam and Hawa, and from the two of them, بَثَّ مِنْهُمَا رِجَالًا كَثِيرًا وَنِسَاءً That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent forth, propagated multitudes of men and women. In other words, 
We are literally one global family. This is what the verse is saying. Oh mankind, you are all one family. All of you, you go back to the same couple. All of you, you are brethren and sisters in humanity. You are from the same flesh and blood. So the verse begins, the surah begins by setting up the paradigm that in terms of humanness, all humanity is equal. And this is something that Islam came with and no other philosophy or system or religion religion or preacher or theologian, no other person before our Prophet وسلم, and before the Quran was this explicit in the oneness of all of humanity, that every single race, every single uh, person of different ethnicities and backgrounds and skin colors, everybody is absolutely equal because all of us go back to the same. And this is the Quran. And of course the hadith, it is exactly in the same narrative as our Prophet وسلم, said the same thing. من آدم وآدم من تراب لا فضل لعربي على عجمي إلا بالتقوى All of you are from Adam and all of you and Adam came from dust so there is no superiority of an Arab over non-Arab of a white over a black except with taqwa or God consciousness and this ayah therefore it reminds us that we have the immediate family, which is mentioned in this verse, that be conscious of Allah and be conscious of Al-Arham. Be conscious of two things in this ayah, the first ayah. Be conscious of Allah and then be conscious of your relatives, i.e. the rights of the relatives, i.e. be conscious that you have responsibilities. You are not just a selfish me, myself and I. No, you are a brother or a sister. You are a father or a mother. You are a son or a daughter. You are a sibling, you are a cousin you're an uncle, you're a niece, be conscious of those ties of kinship and be conscious that you have to answer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for those ties of kinship. Therefore, we are being told that we cannot be selfish. No, remember the rights of Allah and remember the rights of the family as well. as well. The meaning here is that be conscious of Allah and be conscious as well of the family that Allah Azza wa Jal blessed you with. And this verse sets the entire tone that the whole surah is going to deal with the family and also as we said extended family which is society. And the, the, there are many sub-themes we're going to go into and we're going to begin with the sub-theme of family law, of marriage. There are so many verses in Surah An-Nisa about marriage and about the protocols of marriage and about family disputes and about divorce. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah An-Nisa encourages marriage and he brings forth an institution that was unknown pre-Islam and that is the concept of the mahr, the concept of the husband gifting the wife. In pre-Islam, the wife's family would gift the husbands and this culture is still around in some uh, non-Islamic lands but it is not the religion of Islam. In the religion of Islam it is the husband who gives the wife at the time of marriage. And Allah says in, surah, in verse number four, that and give women their dowries and give it with a free spirit. Nihla means graciously, subhanAllah. Don't give and demean. Don't give and remind them of the favor. No, they are also doing you a favor. They're also doing being gracious to you and you be gracious to them by maintaining them, by being good to them and by gifting them free spiritedly, gifting them with generously. But if they decide, the wives, if they decide to give you back some of it, if they say, don't worry, because you know, typically in Islamic cultures and there's nothing wrong with this, 
the mahar is set at a, sometimes a large amount and it's a token that the wife knows that she's not going to demand it. So the, the mahar might be much larger and then she says, no, I'm happy with this much and I'm fine with that. So Allah is saying that فَإِن طِبْنَ لَكُمْ عَنْ شَيْءٍ مِنْهُ نَفْسًا If she willingly, not with pressure, not with society, not by being emotionally blackmailed, if she willingly gives some of it back to you, then no problem. فَكُلُوهُ هَنِيئًا مَرِيئًا Go ahead, take it back and enjoy it and eat from it and spend it, no problem. And in verse number 5, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us another very important point about children and about wardens that we're in charge of. Remember this uh, surah was revealed around the 5th year of the Hijrah, 5th and 6th year of the Hijrah, and there were many orphans from the previous battles. And extended family members, a distant cousin might take an orphan. So this, this chapter talks also about orphans. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not give foolish people your money that Allah has assigned to you to take care of you. Do not give them. What is the meaning here? So imagine you have an orphan living with you or even your own son or daughter. And so Allah says by foolish here, we mean they're not financially responsible is a way to, to translate it. Not financially responsible. Allah is saying, don't just give them large amounts of money and then they're going to waste it. No, that's not how you raise the next generation. This verse is teaching us Parents have a parental responsibility to teach, believe it or not, the Quran is telling this, the value of money to your children. And subhanAllah, the, the most successful billionaires of the world, those that are genuinely successful, they don't just hand their children multi-million dollar checks and they say, do whatever you want. No, they start them from the bottom and they teach them the value of money. And guess what the Quran is saying? Don't just hand your money to people, to these young men and women who don't understand how to use it because not only will you corrupt them, not only will you cause them to go astray, they're not going to understand and appreciate the responsibility that comes with money. And that is why in these verses, Allah says, don't just hand them over money that Allah has given to you to take care of you. Yes, Allah says, feed them, provide for them, waksuhum, give them their clothing. In other words, you have the money, take care of your family, but don't just give them the money to waste until Allah says they have come of age. This is now a reference to the orphan. So imagine a distant cousin dies uh, and you are now taking uh, charge of his children. And that cousin has $50,000. That's not your money, it's the kid's money. So Allah is saying that $50,000 that you have to keep for the sake of this child, test the child. This is uh, verse number uh, seven, uh, six onwards. That test the orphan until when you sense that the orphan is sensible, that the orphan is able to manage this amount of money, then do not be a barrier between the money of his father and the child. It's not your money, it is the child's money. Until when you sense from them financial responsibility, go ahead and give them their money because it is not your money. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a phrase here that is not repeated anywhere in the Quran, the property of the orphan. Allah says, whoever takes the property of the orphans, they are eating the fire of hell. They are eating the fire of hell, whoever does that. So taking money from an orphan is considered to be one of the major sins in Islam. You are not allowed to touch that money 
unless you have to take some of it to take care of the orphan and you are not able to take care of the orphan. Otherwise, in that case, you may take a little bit to take care of the orphan, but you're not allowed to just take it. And don't just waste it and eat it yourself. Whoever does that, Allah says, he is eating directly from the fire of hell. Then in the next section, verses 7 to 12, and then also the very last verse, which is 176, Surah An-Nisa, is 176 verses. Verses 7 to 12 and verse 176, they summarize in quite a lot of detail, in explicit fractions, and our Hafizab uh, recited uh, some of those verses, they summarize the laws of inheritance in detail. We're not going to go over the laws of inheritance. Uh, and by the way, personal note here that um, I studied the laws of inheritance when I was a student at Medina for two solid years. We took classes and then I took private classes and then I taught to some students as well. And the depths and the meanings of these verses and the precision of these fractions, truly it is a miracle. It is a miracle that somebody who was unlettered, somebody who never went through mathematics and training and college and fractions, somebody who didn't do any of this, then produces a system that is so simple, so elegant, so perfect. And the more I studied this branch, it's called Ilmul Fara'id, or the knowledge of inheritance, the more I studied it. And it was one of my favorite classes, by the way, as well, because um, I go into my tangents here, because I had a background in, in, in mathematics, so I knew mathematics better than some of the other students. And it was very easy for me in that regard. But in my case, in particular, what I'm saying here about the verses, the fact that these verses are so precise, and they're so beautiful, and the fact that, again, in the middle of it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says verse number 11 Allah says abaukum wa abnaukum your fathers and, and 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 parents and your children how will you decide how much to leave your parents and how much to leave your children are you even capable are you even emotionally mature enough to take a step back and say how much do I leave my parents if I'm leaving this world and how much do I leave, do I leave my kids and Allah is saying don't worry I took care of it for you abaukum wa abnaukum la tadruna ayyuhum aqrabu lakum nafa'a you don't know which of the two they need your welfare more. Allah Azza wa Jal knows, and that is why so many times, Wallahu Alimun Hakim, wa kan Allahu Aliman Hakima. Allah knows and Allah is all wise. Allah is the one who knows and you do not um, know. And in verse 32, by the way, as well, we are told very explicitly to not challenge uh, these fractions. Do not, do not challenge Allah's wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. And do not be greedy over uh, certain things that Allah might have given preference to others over you. Everyone has a fraction. If your fraction is less with regards to one inheritor, don't be greedy. Accept Allah's decree. Men have a share of what they have earned and women have a share of what they have earned and the both of you men and women ask Allah of his bounty and indeed Allah is aware of everything and by the way these verses when they came down they proved to be another shock to the pre-islamic jahili system why because in pre-islam in the days of jahiliyyah women did not inherit a single dime women themselves were inherited women were treated like property and when a person died his other children would inherit his Otherwise, other than the mother that was their biological mother, they would inherit, the eldest son would inherit his other wives. And the Surah An-Nisa came to ban this. And Surah An-Nisa also instituted a radical reformation, and that is to give the, the, the women of any uh, specific generation, so a son and daughter, a brother and sister, if they're in the same slot, then the woman is going to get half the share of the man. 
And again, just a footnote that is intended, this isn't one of those unintentional tangents, a footnote that is necessary. Look at how frail the human psyche is. Look at how every one of us is a product of our own culture and society. When Allah revealed Surah An-Nisa, so Tafsir Al-Tabari tells us this. Some of the Sahaba came to the Prophet Sallallahu and they questioned, they didn't challenge. It is allowed to question with adab, with respect. It is allowed to understand the wisdom. It is not allowed to challenge Allah and His Messenger. That, that doesn't come from the heart of a mu'min. But a mu'min can ask why. A mu'min can ask, is there any wisdom? So the companions came and they asked the wisdom. They said, O Messenger of Allah, why? Are women getting half of the inheritance? They used to get zero. Why are they getting half of the inheritance when a woman doesn't go and fight in the battle, when a woman doesn't work in the fields, when a woman doesn't do any of the things that the man does, why does she get half of the share? And subhanAllah, 1,400 years ago, the question why she gets half was asked because they didn't even understand the wisdom of getting that half. 1,400 years later, the exact same question is asked, why does she get half? But the paradigms have changed, the culture has changed. And rather than wondering why the half, why is she getting even half, the question is why is she getting only half? Nothing has changed, the Quran is still the same, the cultures have changed. And this shows us the frailty of the human psyche. Every one of us, we need to be aware that we absorb our cultural biases, we absorb the societies we live in, and therefore true Iman means we need to be brave enough to challenge our cultures before we challenge the Quran, to challenge our assumptions, to challenge our philosophies of modernity before we challenge the Quran. Then and. and and then we understand the wisdom of the Quran. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says over and over again, you do not know and Allah knows. So this is one major segment of Surah An-Nisa. Also, I mentioned that Surah An-Nisa has lots of rules about marriage and about marital issues and about divorce and the family. Uh, we have a very explicit uh, forbiddance uh, in the uh, Surah An-Nisa verse 20, verse 21, that the man should never take the mahar back when he divorces the lady. And Allah Azza wa rhetorically chastises the man. How dare you think of taking the money back? How can you take the mahar back? And the two of you embraced one another. Allah is being very generic here. Allah is speaking in elegant language that you were intimate with each other. You were so close. No human being should be that close except if they're married. You did that bond that nobody else did. And now, if a divorce is going to take place, now you're going to demand your money back. And so this is very explicit that if the man initiates divorce, then the mahar will be all for the lady and he cannot uh, take it back. As well in this surah, the surah came and limited the practice of polygamy, as we all know, made very stringent conditions on it. Verse number three and uh, other verses as, as well, Surah An-Nisa. And also verse number 19, Allah forbade the practice of inheriting women. So when a man died and he was married to 10 women, his children would inherit the women just like they inherited the properties and the lands and the cows and the sheep. That's how they treated women in the days of Jahiliyyah. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought the Quran down and forbade obeyed this practice, that you do not inherit, uh, don't inherit uh, women. Women are not property that you uh, hand down and do not coerce them, Allah is saying, to take away from them something that you have given them. In other words, even if a divorce takes place, do not put pressure to get your uh, mahar back as we said. Also in Surah An-Nisa, 
There's a long list of our mahrams and who we are not allowed to marry. Verses 22 to 23 to 24, all of these verses they discuss hurrimat alaykum ummahatukum wa banatukum wa ammatukum wa khalatukum your aunts, your uncles, your maternal aunts, your maternal, your, sorry, your, your aunts, your maternal aunts and your maternal, uh, paternal aunts and your daughters and your granddaughters and the whole list continues and the mothers who gave you milk wa ummahatukum wa adha'nakum and your sisters from those mothers wa akhawatukum min ar-rada'a and the, late, the, the stepdaughters that you have, if you marry a lady and she has a daughter. So Allah has a long list here of women that are haram. And of course for sisters, they just flip the gender around and they'll know the mahrams that they have within this list as well. Also in Surah An-Nisa, we have very clear rulings forbidding extramarital relations, verses 15 to 16. Also, Allah forbids mistresses, secret mistresses. غَيْرَ مُسَافِحِينَ وَلَا أَخْدَانِ It's a common phrase in Surah An-Nisa that don't commit sifah, and sifah is adultery. وَلَا أَخْدَانِ And don't take a khadan is a mistress, is a, a person that is basically a secret lover. And Allah is saying, no, that's not the way of the believer. And Allah lays punishments down for this as well. And of course, in these series of verses as well, there is a verse that uh, has brought a lot of discussion, frankly, a lot of controversy. And I was debating whether to even pause here or not, because if I do pause, I cannot do justice. If I don't pause, then people are going to say, oh, you didn't talk about this verse. I decided to spend two, three minutes and then move on. Truly, this is a verse that has generated a lot of discussion. A lot of people have been uh, critical of our faith from outside Islam. Even some Muslims have uh, radically reinterpreted uh, this verse because it does raise an eyebrow, it raises a lot of questions. It is verse number 34. And uh, much can be said, time is always limited and especially in this verse. But I just want to lay out for you that Look, let us acknowledge that this verse should be discussed in a very uh, educated manner. We need to discuss this. Maybe inshallah, I myself might give a longer lecture later on. But this verse translates as follows. Men are the protectors and maintainers of women. Qawwam means to protect. Qiwama means to take care of. Qiwama means to be in charge of. And so there is this notion of, in terms of roles and responsibilities, men have certain responsibilities towards women. Why? Because Allah has given the one what he has not given the other. Our scholars mention Allah has made the one physically stronger when you have to have a fight with an intruder, when you have to go fight in war. One of the two genders is better equipped than the other. So Allah is saying when it comes to qiwama, when it comes to protection and responsibility and maintenance Why? Because the one has been given certain things, the other has not been given. And because the one is in charge of the finances, right? One of them is in charge of the money. So whoever has been given, uh, in this case the, the gender is the male, whoever has been given certain uh, differences biologically and whoever has the responsibility of giving the money, that comes with certain privileges and certain responsibilities. And then Allah praises women. Women, that the righteous women are those who obey Allah, who guard what Allah has uh, asked them to guard. And then a phrase occurs that has generated over a dozen uh, dissertations, over a hundred articles, many YouTube videos, and people have even left Islam because of this. So I do need to just reference it. And I, I say I cannot do justice to the verse. Much more can be said. But uh, the verse translates, as for those whose shoes you fear 
As for those ladies whose disloyalty you fear, now what does nushuz mean? There's a long list of different interpretations. One interpretation is whose disloyalty, i.e. you fear that they might lean towards breaking the, the bonds of marriage and engaging in extramarital affairs. So uh, if you, there is that type of fear, then the Quran is saying, فَعِذُوهُنَّ Admonish them. وَهْجُرُوهُنَّ فِي الْمَضَاجِعِ That uh, abandon them in their beds. وَضْرِبُوهُنَّ And discipline them. Now of course the phrase discipline them, this is the phrase that has generated so much issues and discussion and uh, controversy. And this is not the place to go into a lot of detail. But I do want to point out here that we do need to be frank about this and take a holistic look. Let us be careful that our own prejudices don't read in. Let us be careful that we don't react or counter-react. Let us be careful and gather together all the relevant verses and all of the ahadith. Okay, this is an ayah in the Quran and uh, the meaning is very clear. Uh, at the same time, let us also remember the hadith in Sahih Bukhari. Our mother Aisha said, our Prophet wasallam never once lifted his hand against a servant or against a lady. And uh, let us also remember that once he gave an entire sermon in the masjid of the Prophet wasallam. he gave a sermon and he received a lot of complaints the night before about uh, women who had been uh, uh, admonished or who had been disciplined by their husbands. And these women complained to the Prophet And he then gave an entire khutbah. He gathered the men and he said, last night many people complained, or in one version, this morning many people complained, many ladies complained uh, against their husbands. And these men are not the best men amongst you. The hadith as well of our Prophet that the best of you are those who treat their women the best. So all of these a hadith and other Quranic verses, including the one in Surah An-Nisa, وَعَاشِرُوهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ And live with women in the best of all manners. They have to be taken all together. Now, all fine and dandy, what is to be done with this phrase here? Again, much can be said. I'll quote you one of the great scholars of tafsir of the last century, uh, Ibn Ashur. Ibn Ashur said that, if we see that men are abusing this concession, because it is a concession, it's not, it's not obligatory. Do step one if you want to. If not, you can divorce. Do step two if you want to. If not, you can divorce. If you want to, there is a possibility that the marriage will retain. If you do step three, you're allowed to do step three. So uh, Imam Ibn Ashur said that if step three is not doing its job, the state can intervene and forbid step three from taking place. And the state can take charge of this uh, issue. And in other words, if I can rephrase, it's not exactly what Ibn Ashur said, let me rephrase though. And this is what I say when I teach uh, advanced uh, students and whatnot, this is what I say that look, uh, the Quran is meant to cater to all situations. And in this particular scenario, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed, it is an allowance, it's not an obligation, various tactics that are meant to protect a marriage in very extenuating circumstances. And if in a particular place and time, a particular tactic is not going to work, in fact, it is within the goals of the Sharia to then say this tactic is not uh, the, the, the intent of the Sharia in this society that we live in. And so if the situation gets that bad, we simply do uh, tactic one, move on to tactic two, and then if it doesn't work out, we part on good ways and there's no need to resort to tactic three. And again, much more can be said. This is not the time, but I did want to not just gloss over it because I do realize that anytime this verse is read, it raises a lot of discussions and, and whatnot. And you know what? Curiosity is healthy and we should ask and we should read at the same time 
We should be brave enough, intellectually brave enough, and we should have enough faith as well to try to reconcile our cultures with our texts. And we thank Allah that this is not an obligation. It is a concession. It is a tactic. And if the tactic is not reaching the goal, then there is no need to insist on the tactic. I have to be very clear here. Sometimes some of us, especially the youngsters, they become overzealous more so than the Sharia requires. And they feel that they're defending the Sharia by being absolute literalists. And that's not what any trained scholar understands. Trained ulama are not minor students of knowledge who can copy and paste and use Google. The difference between an actual alim and a student of knowledge is that the student of knowledge sticks with the literal books that he's read. And the true alim is brave enough to explore and move beyond that within the, obviously, I mean, many caveats, but obviously within the the paradigm and the methodology of mainstream Islam. Nonetheless, I wanted to point out that that is indeed a verse that deserves more attention. And let us not forget as well that Surah An-Nisa, the same verse that has this, also has verse number 19 that Allah says, وَعَاشِرُهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ Live with women in the best of kindness. بِالْمَعْرُوفِ means that live with them and treat them in the way that your society treats them in the best of manners. Because treatment of husbands and wives, treatments of men and women, it varies from culture to culture, time to time, place to place. And yesterday I mentioned that genders are real, uh, gender, genders are actual real facts, unlike what some people are saying now, and gender roles. I said yesterday, and the Quran is very clear in this verse, some gender roles are from the Sharia, and some gender roles are from culture. And that's something that requires a longer discussion, but it is very clear that there is this combination of factor. The Quran says certain things about gender roles, and the Quran also says certain things about gender culture. Bil-ma'roof means treat them with the best of manners, the way that your culture does, and that's what urf means here. So this is a commandment in the Quran. Then Allah says, if you dislike your wife, realize you may dislike her and Allah has placed a lot of good in her. In other words, Allah is speaking, this is verse number 19, Allah is speaking to the husbands there who are always nitpicking on the negatives. And Allah is saying, why are you looking only at the negatives? There might be a lot of positives that you're ignoring. And by the way, it's a two-way street here. And I said this yesterday, I'll repeat again today. Every time there's a gender-specific verse Flip it around because it's meant for both. If a wife is always finding fault with her husband, see if she can find the positives as well. Don't just concentrate on the negatives. Weigh the positives and negatives. This is in the Quran. If you dislike them, it's possible you dislike something despite the fact, Allah has placed a lot of good, but as is usual, we are blind to the good. We don't appreciate the good that we have. We take the good for granted. Also, Allah subhanahu Reminds us again, verse 129, 130, that you're never going to do justice to your wives. You're never going to treat your wives fairly if you're in a multiple wife situation, even if you want to do so, but at least don't try to show your bias. Try your best to do that. If you try, and of course, the verse is about polygamous situations, but it can apply to a monogamous situation as well, that you can never do justice in a marriage. But if you just try and you try your best, Allah Azza wa is forgiving and merciful. Verse 130, and in case the marriage does not work out and they have 
have to go their ways, Allah Azza wa Jal will take care of the both of them from His abundance. Also, Surah An-Nisa is the most optimistic verse about solving marital problems. The most optimistic surah about solving marital problems. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala encourages, dare, dare I say commands the couples to try to reconcile. Verse 128, that if a woman fears uh, that her husband might not love her, might withdraw from her, and vice versa, both ways, as I said in the Quran, then there is no problem that if they try to reconcile, if they try to bring about some type of peace between them, then Allah says, وَالصُّلْحُ خَيْرٌ Reconciling is the best. Coming together is the best. And in verse number 35, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if the two of them fear, fear that they're going to break up, if there's a, 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 a dread that the divorce is going to take place, then appoint an arbiter, one from his side and one from her side. And then there is a phrase here, listen to this carefully, every single man and woman, if you're single or married, memorize this verse, memorize it. Allah says, in yurida islahan yuwaffiqillahu baynahuma. I say when I teach classes about marriage, this is the most optimistic phrase to married couples in the whole Quran. Allah is guaranteeing if you want reconciliation, if you want to have a happy marriage, if you want to come together, Allah will bring about that reconciliation and you will be living together. So if you are sincere and you want to compromise, you want to have a good life with your spouse and the both of you come with sincerity, Allah is saying Allah will bring it about. And therefore, if there's genuine sincerity on both sides, Allah will bless the uh, marriage. So there's many verses about marriage and divorce. Another uh, theme of Surah An-Nisa uh, is a very, very long theme. It's in multiple verses and it deals with the hypocrites and it deals with their reluctance to turn to Allah and His Messenger. And so we can talk about this theme that the mu'min or the believer is somebody who judges in his personal life according to the judgment of Allah and His Messenger. The mu'min and the believer resorts to the Qur'an and Sunnah and tries to find everything in light of the Qur'an and in the Sunnah. Verse number 64, Allah says, We have not sent any prophet except that he be obeyed by Allah's command. Prophets are meant to be obeyed. Verse number 65, one of the most explicit verses in the Quran about the importance of obeying the Prophet Wasallam. Now remember, this verse was revealed with regards to the hypocrites who claim to be Muslim, who outwardly said they're Muslim, but they didn't want to listen to the Prophet Wasallam. Now that version of hypocrisy, Alhamdulillah, it is rare in our times because Islam is persecuted. Hypocrisy of that version, it only comes when Islam is very powerful. As for when Islam is, is, is being persecuted, that version of hypocrisy is less. Nonetheless, we as individual Muslims, we need to be careful that we don't fall prey to that reality. Allah says in the Quran, فَلَا وَرَبِّكَ I give a qasam by your Lord that they do not have faith until they come to you to judge between them in all their matters. And then they find within themselves no resentment about your decisions. And then they submit wholeheartedly. Then Allah says, verse 69, whoever obeys Allah and His Messenger, those are the people that Allah has blessed 
فولائك الذين أنعم الله عليهم سورة الفاتحة إهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم سورة النساء verse 69 answers who is أنعمت عليهم فولائك مع الذين أنعم الله عليهم من النبيين والصديقين والشهداء والصالحين these are the people Allah has blessed and favored the prophets the sincere the martyrs and the صالحين the righteous people verse number 80 Whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah. وَمَنْ يُطِعِ الرَّسُولَ فَقَدْ أَطَاعَ اللَّهِ And therefore, dear Muslims, anyone who says, I don't need to follow the Prophet wasallam, even if he calls himself Muslim, he's not a Muslim. Simple as that. Anyone who says, I don't need to follow the Sunnah. I don't need to follow what that man that Allah has sent, the Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Hashimi al-Qurashi, I don't need to follow anybody who says that. They are disobeying Allah. You cannot be a Muslim and reject what our Prophet ﷺ said because Allah has appointed him. And the Quran tells you, "Man Rasula faqad Allah." Whoever obeys the Messenger has obeyed Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So there's a whole motif and theme about judging by the judgment of Allah and about following. And by the way, how does this come into play in our daily lives? Well, the, the haram and the halal. The good and the bad, the ethical, the moral and immoral. Where do we get those values from? We need to turn to the Quran and Sunnah. We need to submit. Even if we don't understand, we have the right to question, no problem. Yes, alunaka, they ask you about this, they ask you about that. We have the right to question for knowledge. We do not have the right to challenge what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said or what the Prophet has said. There's another small passage that I wanted to shed some light on because we have not talked about this up until now. And that is belief in predestination. Surah An-Nisa has a small section that is very profound about predestination. Verses 78 and 79, please look at them. And I encourage all of you to take quick notes as I'm speaking. And then inshallah you can go back and look up the verses on your own. Verse number 78, Allah is talking about the hypocrites. The hypocrites, when something good happens to them, they say, oh, this is from Allah. But when something bad happens, they blame the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. That's your fault. This is a reference to the battle of Uhud. You guys messed up. You guys didn't listen to us. Allah says, قُلْ كُلُّمْ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ Everything that happens, happens by the will of Allah. So what is the matter with these people that they don't understand? Everything that happens, happens by the will of Allah. That's verse 78. Verse 79, it seems to conflict directly with what has just preceded. Whatever good happens to you is from Allah. And whatever bad happens to you is from yourself. Subhanallah. How do we reconcile? 78 says everything from Allah. 79 says the good from Allah, the bad from yourself. The response, this beautiful section summarizes the profundity, the, prof the, the, the profundity of our belief in Qadr. The belief in Qadr is a very detailed topic and I have given longer lectures about this, but in a nutshell, we believe in Qadr. Everything happens by Allah's Qadr. Nothing happens except by predetermination and predestination. We believe Allah knows, Allah controls. Not a leaf falls except with His permission and His knowledge. At the same time, we do not ascribe evil to Allah. We do not ascribe evil to Allah. No, if good happens, we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If a misfortune happens, if a calamity happens, we do not blame Allah. We realize that this calamity, it is as a result 
result of our sins, and that should cause us to turn to Allah, to come closer to Allah, and that calamity then becomes a blessing in disguise. The calamity is not in and of itself a punishment. It is because of our sins, yes, that doesn't mean it's a punishment. Why? Because Allah says in another verse, not in Surah An-Nisa, وَيَعْفُوا عَنْ كَثِيرٌ Because of these calamities, Allah forgives much of your sins. So, a calamity comes down, the calamity can come on the righteous, it can come on the evil person. How we respond dictates whether we are righteous or dictates whether we are evil. If we respond by turning to Allah, if we respond by increasing our iman, if we respond by istighfar, then that calamity is a blessing in disguise. It is because of our sins, but Allah will use that calamity to forgive our sins, so we come out the winner. And if we respond by blaming Allah, if we respond by turning away from the religion, then that calamity is a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Therefore, everything that happens is from Allah. The good that happens, we thank Allah. Anything bad that happens, we think about our sins. We blame a causal connection between our sins and that bad thing. And then we say, oh Allah, forgive us, I'm gonna be a better person. And we try to make the best of that situation, recognizing that that calamity has the potential to earn us Jannah, has the potential to draw us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's a beautiful summary uh, of Qadr in Surah An-Nisa. Also Surah An-Nisa, there's an interesting story about it as well. And that's verse number 41. The Prophet ﷺ said to Ibn Mas'ud that I want you to recite the Qur'an to me. Ibn Mas'ud said, Ya Rasulullah, you want me to recite the Qur'an to you even though it came down to you? And he said, yes, I love to hear the Qur'an being recited from other than me. This shows us, by the way, to recite the Qur'an is an action of worship and to listen to recitation is also an act of worship. It is Islamic to listen to the Qur'an and it is a part of Islam to recite the Qur'an. Even our Prophet wasallam, and the Qur'an came down to him. He said, I want to listen to somebody else. So Ibn Mas'ud started reciting Surah An-Nisa. He just chose Surah An-Nisa. And he got to verse number 41. And he heard the Prophet crying. And he said, stop, enough, stop, enough. He looked up. He said his tears were running down his eyes. Verse number 41 of Surah An-Nisa caused our Prophet to cry. And the verse translates as, how are you going to be, Ya Rasulullah? How will be your situation the day that we bring a witness from every community and we bring you as a witness against these people? So the Prophet ﷺ will be a witness against the Quraysh who rejected him, against his people who persecuted him. And the visualization of that, of the day of judgment and of the situation caused him to cry. So verse number 41 of Surah An-Nisa, it is the verse that caused our Prophet ﷺ to cry. Another uh, theme that we can derive from Surah An-Nisa is the theme of tawbah, of repentance. And this fits perfectly with the broader theme of family and society. Why? Because nobody's perfect. Nobody is perfect. Just like you find faults with other people, people will find faults with you. So the way that you become not perfect, but close to perfection, is by acknowledging your mistake and repenting to Allah. That is why tawbah is such a, a, a common motif of Surah An-Nisa. And there are so many verses about tawbah in Surah An-Nisa. Of them, for example, verse 16, about those who commit an extramarital affair, that if the two of them, the man and the woman, if they repent, and if they reform, and they turn over a new leaf, then leave them alone. Indeed, Allah is forgiving and merciful. Verse number 17, 
and verse number 18, Allah Azza wa Jal reminds us whose repentance is accepted. Allah says that repentance will always be accepted by Allah for anyone who commits a mistake while they were ignorant. The meaning of ignorance here is that they acted in a state where they weren't, uh, they weren't they, foolish is the better translation here. That uh, they, they, they committed the sin in the state of heedlessness and then they repented after this. Allah Azza wa Jal shall forgive them and Allah is knowledgeable and wise. But Allah says, don't make a mockery of repentance. Repentance is not for those who continue to commit sins their entire lives. Then when they see the angel of death, they say, oh now I repent. No, Allah is not going to accept the repentance of the one who plays games in this manner. Repentance has to come from the heart and repentance has to be immediate and repentance has to really show that, oh Allah, I feel regret and remorse for what I've done and I want to turn over a new leaf. And this is again very explicit. And that's why in Surah in, in, uh, verse 1110, that Allah Azza wa Jal says that woman yaksib ithman, whoever uh, commits an evil deed or whoever wrongs himself, thumma yastaghfirillah, and then he asks Allah for forgiveness, yajidillaha ghafoor rahima he shall find Allah forgiving, he shall find Allah merciful. Whatever sin you do, whatever you have wronged yourself, and you ask Allah's forgiveness, Allah will forgive you. And Allah says, whoever commits a sin, you have done it against yourself, and Allah is aware of it. Then, verse 1112, whoever commits a mistake, or does a sin and then blames an innocent person. You bring somebody else. Look, between you and Allah, the default is if you repent, you are forgiven, no problem. The minute you trample on the rights of other people, the minute you bring in an innocent person and you take his haqq or you blame him for something you have done, Allah says, that is a clear sin. That is something you have done a buhtan, you have done a major sin. Therefore, we learn from this and from many verses that sins between you and Allah, and I'm not trivializing, but I'm saying, generally speaking, the private sins that we do, if we are repentful, we're, we're regretful, we turn to Allah, inshallah, Allah will forgive. But the sins we do to other people, slandering people, using vulgarities against them, stealing their properties, backbiting, doing things that will hurt other people, that is a much, much larger sin. And that sin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will let that person ask his right on the day of judgment for. So that's something we need to be uh, very uh, cognizant of. Uh, also in this surah, there are many, many verses pertaining to uh, personal manners, pertaining to akhlaq. And there are again so many verses about this because again, uh, the theme of the surah is family and society, right? Therefore, how do you live comfortably in a family, with your family members. What must you do? So much is said over here. Verse number 50, uh, verse number 37, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbids stinginess. You have to be generous. Allah does not like the one who is stingy. Verse number 58, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs people to be honest and to give back there whatever has been entrusted to you. You have to be able to keep secrets if there's a secret. If somebody has trusted you with something, somebody has gifted you or given you something and said, keep this for some while until I come back. So you have to uh, return what has been entrusted unto you. And that means, of course, ethical morality. It means you are an honest and trustworthy person. Uh, verse number 85, it talks about the necessity of positive intercession. What does this mean? So you see two people, a cousin and another cousin, or a friend, you see them, they are not talking, they're on bad terms. Allah is saying, 
Don't be a neutral party. Get involved and bring them together. Be an intermediary and do a good shafa'ah. And you know, just talk to one, talk to the other, and just sweeten things up. Sometimes a third party will help bring those two together. So Allah is saying, why don't you do that? Be that third party. And if you are, if you are that intercessor, you shall have a good share of that. And on the other hand, if you're an intermediary for evil, if you are doing something wrong and you're the middleman, well then you're going to get a share of that as well. Uh, verse number 86, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, and what a, what a small commandment in the grand scale of things, but is in the Quran. It shows you what it means to be a good person. When you are greeted with any greeting, Respond to that greeting with a better greeting, or at least return the same thing. Verily, Allah counts every single thing. Being of cheerful countenance, somebody says, Salaamu Alaikum, Allah is saying, Say, Wa Alaikum Salaam Wa Rahmatullah. Somebody says, Salaamu Alaikum Wa Rahmatullah, add Wa Barakatuhu, or at least respond in a similar manner. And if they're not Muslim and they say, Hey, good morning, how are you doing? The Quran is telling us we respond back in a similar manner and even better. Oh, I'm doing fine, thank you for asking, how are you? Allah is commanding us to be of cheerful countenance when somebody says a greeting to us. Why? Because the greeting lays the foundation for the rest of the conversation. If you're gloomy, you're angry, you're scowling as the first conversation, what's going to happen? These are commandments in the Quran. Look at the minutia that Allah is revealing from above the seven heavens. When somebody greets you, greet him back with a better greeting. Our religion really wants a beautiful society. It's also a religion, yes, of worship, yes, of rituals, but it's also a religion of good akhlaq and good manners. It's a whole way of life. It's from the smallest to the largest thing, everything is encompassed in this religion. And verse number 140, 114, excuse me, Allah forbids secret gatherings that are meant for evil. Generally speaking, Allah says, لا خير في كثير من When people arrange a secret gathering, nobody should know about it. Allah is saying, كثير, most such gatherings, they are not good. However, if there's a secret gathering, that is meant to do a good, that is meant to do some charity or kindness or to bring reconciliation. For example, two people are fighting. So you bring their friends and you say, hey, don't tell, don't tell. We're coming a secret gathering to bring those two together. Let's discuss tactics, how we can bring these cousins, these brothers, these people that are not talking, how we can bring them together. Allah is saying most secret gatherings are not good. But if the secret gathering has a higher goal and purpose, then that is a good thing that you can do. Again, look at these small little things that Allah is telling us that we reflect upon and make our society better. Verse 148, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah does not like the public uttering of any type of evils, except if wrong has been done. If a sin has been committed in private, if two people, if one person has done something and you come to know about it or two people and you come to know about it and they've not hurt anybody else they've not harmed anybody else Allah is saying don't publicize their sin keep it hidden you advise them directly sure try your best that they repent and whatnot but you don't go in and and gossip and tattletale and put it on Facebook and Twitter what 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 it what type of religion is this that or what type of manners is this that if somebody's committed a sin you want to publicize it no Allah does not love the publicization of bad things that have happened but yes in one scenario 
if wrong has been done, somebody has taken your money, somebody has hurt you and there's no justice, you have to say, look, this has happened, he has done this. So the one who has been wronged, yes, that person, he has the right to go public. But if it's a sin that is private, you caught somebody drinking. It's not your responsibility to go and publicize that, oh, I found this person drinking. No, la yuhibbullahu jahra bisu. Somebody's done something sin sinful, keep it hidden between him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, you advise, yes, you take Take charge and try your best to, to make that person better. But no need to go public about this. And we conclude with two verses that I especially wanted to uh, pay uh, extra attention to. And then inshallah we are done with our summary of Surah Al-Nisa. And uh, tomorrow we will move on to uh, Surah Al-Ma'idah which is a very, very uh, juicy surah. The pun you will understand tomorrow inshallah ta'ala. But just remember it's a juicy surah. Uh, so verse I wanted to, to mention with two verses here. Uh, verse number 36 is one of the most important verses of Surah An-Nisa. Our scholars, in fact, some of the Sahaba and Tabi'un, they called it the verse of the rights, the verse of the huquq. And this is a verse that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala summarizes who you have to be good to, and that's essentially everybody. Worship Allah and don't ascribe partners to Him, and be good to your parents, and be good to your relatives, and be good to orphans, and to the poor, and to the neighbor who lives next door to you, and to the neighbor who's far away, and be good to your associates, and be good to your travelers, and the, the one that you're traveling with, the one that you're just sitting next to on the plane, be good to him, and be good to your servants, and, your, and everybody. And Allah Azza does not love the one who is arrogant and showing off. So this is called the verse of rights, that Allah is commanding you to be good to everybody around you. And the final verse that I want us to go away with from Surah An-Nisa is a very important commandment. Verse number 82. Why don't they ponder over the message of the Qur'an? Why don't they think about the Qur'an? For had it been from any besides Allah, they would have found much discrepancy. They would have found much contradiction in it. This book that has laid the foundation of an entire civilization, this book that teaches you the most advanced theology about the one in the heavens down to the most mundane rituals about how to enter houses and what times you can go in and out and how you say salam and all of these. This book, entire system that's teaching you fractions of inheritance, Allah is saying, had the book been from other than Allah, they would have found much contradiction in it. But not only is there no contradiction, it is coming together in such a beautiful manner. Look at the diverse range of topics that is being discussed. Look at the various concepts one after the other. And subhanAllah, if you understand the Arabic and you listen to the Arabic, it just flows miraculously. And I have to say this point, excuse me for one extra minute here. Any other book, if you go in this type of fashion and manner, you will get lost immediately. It is the Qur'an that jumps from topic to topic, from the heaven to this earth, from issues of theology to law, from history of the past to predictions of the future. And you, don't even under, uh, you, you cannot even tell that it's jumping. The smooth transition, the flow of language, it is simply inconceivable that any other book can do even anything closer to the, close to this. And that is why this book is clearly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know when you read an awkward translation, a lot of times it is true, you kind of get lost. What is going on here? I don't understand. But if you go to the Arabic and you listen to the Arabic, the speech of Allah through the Qur'an is unlike the speech of any created man. The Qur'an is a completely, completely unique and different understanding. And with that, insha'Allah ta'ala, we conclude today. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
شهر رمضان الذي أنزل فيه القرآن هدى للناس وبينات من الهدى والفرقان فمن شهد منكم الشهر فليصمه ومن كان مريضا أو على سفر فعدة من أيام أخر يريد الله بكم اليسر ولا يريد بكم العسر ولتكملوا العدة ولتكبروا الله على ما هداكم ولعلكم تشكرون